Well, good morning again. I'm going to give Les just a minute to figure out my vocal range because I'm hearing a lot of feedback. Uh, while we're doing that, if you would, please uh, join with me in turning to Mark chapter 8. And if you are able, I would ask that you stand for the reading of God's word today. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Oh, look at that, it just jumps. There we go. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For who, whom, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day you have given, uh, for this message, Father. Just uh, bless the speaking of the word, bless the hearing of the word. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Please be seated. So obviously I'm standing up here barefoot, um, uh, and, and Emma, I'm kind of going to blame Brad. Yesterday while uh, John and I were talking with him, uh, John quickly volunteered that I was preaching today to Brad, and the first thing immediately out of his mouth was, are you wearing shoes? <laughs> so I don't know how often that's a conversation in your household, but thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm barefoot. Um, Are we Christians or are we disciples? And you notice I've got the Christian in the, word, in the quotes, uh, and I'll be using a lot of air quotes today. But what has happened to the word Christian? How did we as a church let society take ownership of that word? When did it cease to be the badge of honor that we find in the early church? Now, Christian is only referenced three times in the New Testament. And in these instances, we are truly the little Christ's we're called to be those imitators of Christ. Now Luke will record two of these in Acts. The first one is simply, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole while, sorry, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Later in Acts, he writes, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me whether to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether long or short, 
I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me in this day might become such as I am, except for these change. chains. Sorry. Now Peter, writing in the early first century church, demonstrates that this term, when Paul is before Agrippa, is widespread throughout the entire Roman Empire. It's a common term of the day. And it's directly tied to those who follow Jesus. In 1 Peter 4, he's writing, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So when did this change? When did Christian become that catch-all term that society uses for those who believe in God? And I'm using God here with that lowercase g. Many of these are cultural Christians. Those secular or non-religious individuals, maybe they have a family member that was claiming to be a Christian. These are the ones who can be religious but don't identify with Christian theology but they still identify with that Christian culture due to that family background, a personal experience, or the social and cultural environment in which they grew up. Now, as of 2021, there were reported to be roughly 41,000 Christian denominations. And, And just a quick search on that incredible document, Wikipedia, shows how Christianity is viewed by society. Uh, This is a little hard to read, but if you go and just type in Christian denominations, all of those upper lists can be broken down and they list the subcategories. Uh, Christianity is one of the most prevalent religions in the United States. Estimates from 2021 suggest that the entire U.S. population of 332 million has roughly 63% that identify as a Christian, or 210 million. The majority of Christian Americans are Protestant Christians, 140 million or 42%, though there are also significant numbers of American Roman Catholics, other Christian denominations, and here I'm using Christian denominations, such as Latter-day Saints, Orthodox Christians, Oriental Orthodox Christians, and Jehovah's Witness. Societal and cultural Christians are now included as those groups uh, that that corrupted Christian doctrine and espouse heresy. Uh, I'm, Ricky, you were a little soft-hearted yesterday, or last week. I'm not gonna be here. As the church, we need to show where heresy is, and I'm sorry, but at least three of those pointed out are not Christians. They may have come from a Christian origin, but it's been corrupted, it's heresy. Uh, Friday, I'm going to keep throwing Ricky under the bus in a good way because of what you did last week. Thank you so much. And then throughout this week, uh, he texted a a group of us an example that was shared in a Facebook group, and I just had to include it because it fit so well with this. Uh, Some of you may have seen it. Uh, It's called Lover or Prostitute, The Question That Changed My Life. It's written by a gentleman named David Reiser. And in the post, he said this. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of teaching at a school of ministry. My students were hungry for God, and I was constantly searching for ways to challenge them to fall more in love with Jesus. 
and to become voices for revival in the church. I came across a quote attributed most often to Reverend Sam Pascoe. It is a short version of the history of Christianity, and it goes like this. Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It came to America and became an enterprise. Some of the students were only 18 or 19 years old, and I wanted them to understand and appreciate the importance of that last line, so I clarified it by adding an enterprise. That's a business. After a few moments, Martha, the youngest student in the class, raised her hand. I could not imagine what her question might be. I thought the little vignette was self-explanatory, and that I had performed it brilliantly. Nevertheless, I acknowledged Martha's raised hand. Yes, Martha. She asked a simple question. A business? But isn't it supposed to be a body? I could not envision where this line of questioning was going, and the only response I could think of was yes. She continued, but when a body becomes a business, isn't that a prostitute? The room went dead silent. For several seconds, no one moved or spoke. We were stunned, afraid to make a sound, because the presence of God had flooded into the room, and we, were, we knew we were on holy ground. God had taken over the class. Martha's question changed my life. For six months, I thought about her question at least once every day. When a body becomes a business, isn't that a prostitute? There's only one answer to her question. The answer is yes. The American church tragically is heavy, heavily populated by people who do not love God. How can we really love him? We don't even know him. And I mean really know him. I stand by my statement that I believe that most American Christians do not know God, much less love him. The root of this condition originates in how we came to God. Most of us came to him because of what we were told he could do for us. We were promised that he would bless us in life and take us to heaven after death. We married him for his money and we don't care if he lives or dies as long as we can get his stuff. We've made the kingdom of God into a business, merchandising his anointing, and this should not be. We are commanded to love God and are called to be the bride of Christ. That's pretty intimate stuff. We're supposed to be as lovers. How can we love someone we don't even know? And even if we do not know someone, sorry, even if we do know someone, is that a guarantee that we truly love them? Are we lovers or prostitutes? It's a pretty powerful article. There's a little bit more in there. And uh, it really challenges us, doesn't it? Our American societal Christianity has come to be filled with redefined and watered down terminology. Um, I, I was joking with my wife earlier that uh, throughout this week, I almost could have memed this entire sermon, done nothing but meme slides and still worked through it, just with posts from different pastors and, and groups that I'm in, other satire, Christian comedy groups, it all seemed to just come together. Uh, but one of the things that stood out this week was a quote by Vody Bachman, where he stated, the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. 
Let's take a quick glance back to Mark 8.34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Think about two of those phrases that Mark uses, deny himself and take up the cross. These two phrases warn us that this is not an easy path, but it's difficult, and that at the root of the problem is going to be ourself. In our American Christian lifestyle, we change what the text tells us and begin to water down our theology. February 5th of 2022, there's an article written by Christy Grambell on the Gospel Coalition website where she puts it this way. For instance, if we consider how we pursue self-denial, we might find that we associate denying ourselves with denying our desires because self refers to us and what we want. We add a direct object to the deny himself so that it becomes deny himself things whether that be material objects or immaterial things such as success, love, meaningful work. Denying of the self's desires is a common misunderstanding of self-denial. But sometimes we take it further. We ignore the self. Because we know ourselves to be inherently sinful, we may consider that anything originating out of the self is at least suspect, if not threatening or wrong. Fearful of being too self-focused and too inward-gazing, we create a false dichotomy in which we have to choose between the focus on Christ and self-examination. Cross-bearing is perhaps even more misunderstood. We all have our crosses to bear, as applied to a variety of difficulties. From being used in jest, I'm going to a conference next week in Florida, it's my cross to bear, to an expression of frustrating over minor inconvenience such as the habitual lateness of a family member, or to describing truly difficult situations like temptations, long-term sickness, or difficult relationships. Believers can tend to allegorize any unpleasantness as our cross, and then we spiritualize it as part of discipleship. Or even more extreme, cross-bearing becomes a reference to how self Discipleship is tantamount to pain, not as including suffering, but as essential in nature. Now, is this what Jesus called us to do? Sorry, you all know my coffee addiction. I will admit that openly. I think everything that everyone will agree that uh, this is not what Jesus calls us to do at all. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak of picking our cross up and uh, Luke simply puts it this way, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But what is a disciple? Do we understand what that truly is? Do we understand what it is historically and culturally when that was written? Now, the word disciple occurs more than 230 times in the Gospels and Acts. Yeah, that's, that's crazy, right? That simple word. But we don't quite understand it to the same level. Now the, the textbook or dictionary definition of disciple is simply a follower and student of a mentor, teacher, or other figure. In Greek it's a matheates, which means a pupil of a teacher or an apprentice to a master craftsman. 
Simply, the breakdown is from math, the mental effort needed to think something through properly, to be a learner. Uh, in our case, someone catechized, which is simply just instructing systematically and especially by questions, answers, and explanations and corrections with proper instruction from the Bible with its necessary follow-through or life applications. Catechizing is what the kids are doing on Wednesday nights. They're working through the New City Catechism. Ron spoke of that quite a few years ago. If you have not looked into that, please do. It will be incredible in helping you grow and understand Scripture. Now, the, the apprenticeship is a system of training the next generation of practitioners of a structured competency and a basic set of skills. It's a lot of words. Apprentices are a set strict training program. So they can gain a set of skills or prepare themselves for their desired trade or a certain career in which they plan to pursue. We still have a form of this today in the trades. You go through an apprenticeship to become a journeyman, to become a master. Now the master craftsman was entitled to employ young people as an inexpensive, inexpensive form of labor in exchange for providing food, lodging, and formal training in the craft. And apprentices typically began at 10 to 15 years of age, would live with the master craftsmen, and they would work with them. Most of those apprentices aspired to become master craftsmen themselves on completion of their contract, usually a term of about seven years. So if you think, Jesus spent time as an apprentice under his father. Anywhere from the age of 10 to 15 for those next seven years at least. Now this is interesting to think of in relationship to what Jesus' occupation was prior to the ministry. We know he apprenticed under Joseph until he became a master. And I do want to point out, notice that I do not use the word carpenter. Uh, we, we even have it in scripture here. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is it not his mother called Mary are, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So the Greek word here for carpenter is actually tekton, and Larry will critique me later on my pronunciation. My Greek is very rusty. But it's a common term at this point. And it just simply references an artisan or craftsman. And in this case, it can mean carpenter, woodworker, or builder, stonemason. There's a Lifeway article called The Forgotten Jesus. Was Jesus a carpenter or a stonemason? By Robbie Galati. And I want to put this in here. At face value, without taking the Jewish cultural background into consideration, a carpenter could fit that description that we see in Matthew 13.55. However, a quick survey of northern Israel's landscape reveals that the job of a carpenter may not be the best fit for the Greek word. The majority of homes in Israel, as noted by Hebraic scholar James Fleming, are constructed with stone. We see that today when we get the images of what's going on over in Gaza, right? Not a lot of wood, but a lot of stone and concrete. Fleming continues, Jesus and Joseph would have formed and made nine out of ten projects from stone, either by chiseling or carving stone or stacking building blocks. 
Does this mean Jesus never worked with wood? Well, we can't say conclusively one way or the other. The fact is that a man attempting to make a living as a wood carpenter would have a challenging time because trees were and still are scarce in that region. Another reason why it's most likely that Jesus and Joseph worked with stone and not wood is because Nazareth was only three miles from the ancient town of Zippori. During the first century, Zippori was the developing city of the time. It was rapidly growing under the reign of Herod Antipas and would eventually be called the jewel of all Galilee. And that is the term applied to it by the Jewish historian Josephus. Just lost my... Don't have my glasses and the text keeps getting smaller on me. I'm sorry. So Herod's massive beautification project in Zippori would have required the help of every available and skilled tecton in the surrounding area, likely including Joseph. Joseph would have been in a perfect location to commute to work for halfway between Nazareth and Zippori was an enormous rock quarry. Regardless of whether Jesus himself worked there or not, and this is the author saying, I believe he did, he definitely visited the ancient quarry and would have seen the stones being cut by his stonemason father. If it was true that Jesus was the son of a stonemason, he would have been trained in stonemasonry following his father's profession. With this background knowledge, it's helpful to take a fresh look at his language and that of his followers when they speak of stones in the Bible. For example, after the chief priests, scribes, and elders questioned Jesus' authority in the temple, Jesus shared the parable of the wicked tenants. Upon completion, he looked at them and said, what then is that that is written? And we see this in Luke and Psalms. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the author added emphasis here. Now, what type of master craftsman Jesus would have been has no effect on his being our savior. But it does make many passages referencing stone much more understandable, especially since there's a lot more regarding stone than there is wood. Many of you are familiar with this sketch. Do you know the story behind it? Albrecht Durer drew this sketch. Albrecht and his brother Albert came from a northern, from a middle-class family of 18 children. Both boys wanted to be artists, but their parents could not afford to send the pair of them to the art school as they desired. In fact, it was unlikely they could even afford to send one of the boys to school of that type. So one night, the two brothers make a pact. They would toss a coin and the loser would go to work in the coal mines near their home to support his brother during the early years of his study. Four years later, they would reverse the roles. The brother who then went to school would be able to work and make money to support the other brother as he also pursued his dream of becoming an artist. As providence has it, Albrecht won the coin toss. Spends the next four years in the academy learning and applying his trade. He proved to be something of a prodigy at drawing, painting, and wood cutting, even surpassing his teacher's artistic ability. When four years pass and it comes time to send Albrecht's younger brother to school, Albert broke down sobbing. He showed his brother his working hands that had been damaged during the previous four years. He told Albrecht that every bone in his hands had been broken at least once by the hard labor in the coal mines. 
His hands were rough, disfigured, arthritic. It was now impossible for him to do the fine and delicate work of an artist. It said that Albrecht was so moved by his brother's sacrifice that he asked Albert to pose in prayer for him. He then drew the famous ink and pencil sketch, Praying Hands, as a model for an altarpiece he had been commissioned to create for a patron. If you have the privilege of ever shaking hands with a lifelong tradesman, you know how rough and hardened those hands can be. When we picture Jesus, we often think of him having these uh, silky smooth hands, right? No calluses. Someone who's never done any physical labor. We know that's far from the truth. This was a craftsman, somebody who worked with his hands daily. Those same rough, hardened hands of that master craftsman are still lovingly at work, shaping us into his image. Noted New Testament scholar Michael Wilkins, who's researched the subject in great deal, helpfully says, and I'm going back here to our disciple and apprentice, sorry, rough transition. The disciple is one who comes to Jesus for eternal life, has claimed Jesus as Savior and God, and has embarked in a life of following Jesus. William Kynes, who I referenced earlier, expands that definition and says a disciple is one who responds to the call of faith, sorry, the call of Jesus in faith, resulting in a relationship of absolute allegiance and supreme loyalty through which Jesus shares his own life and the disciple embarks on a lifetime of learning to become like his master. Did the disciples apprentice under Jesus? Yes, very much. Did they forsake everything to follow him? Very much. Did they understand what they were doing at the time? Probably not. So which path are we on? Now, I know it says destruction. I didn't want to take time to change that. I, I really wanted to title this, are we following the path of the cultural Christian or are we following the path of the disciple? Last Sunday, Ricky spoke on this as well when he said, uh, and I'm quoting you now, the people who call themselves the children of God but who never take time to sit in their Father's presence, the people who call themselves Christians, which means little Christ, who never actually have a conversation with the one whom they are named for, the people who say they are his disciples but never learn to follow him where he may go and where he might stay and get acquainted with the Holy Spirit he left on earth in order to give us Beautiful. Did you write that? Mostly. God wrote it through you. Thank you. There are many that are going to point to these, the, the cultural Christian and the disciple as being the same path. There's others that are going to say, well, they're really the same path, but there's two levels. And I want to emphasize, there are not two levels of Christians. Disciples are just not the more committed Christians. There's only one way, through Jesus. It's the path of the disciple. I was surprised at how often this image was coming up as I was looking through this. There's a lot of authors that some championed this, this two levels of Christianity. 
I don't know how you can have two levels of Christianity. You're either a Christian or you're not. There's an article on the C.S. Lewis Institute written by Thomas Terence talks about this idea. The definitions of Wilkins and Kynes, who I've referenced earlier, will come as a surprise to many. As noted above, in some churches, a disciple is thought to be a Christian who has gone on to make a higher level of commitment to Christ and his lordship than the average Christian. The assumption underlying this idea is that Jesus offers two acceptable standards or levels of commitment. Unfortunately, this view fails to take notice that Jesus had only one standard. His earthly ministry up to the cross was focused on proclaiming God's kingdom and calling people to discipleship. What this entailed is a feature throughout his work with the Twelve, who were first called to be disciples, later chosen to be apostles, who would lead the church in the mission of making disciples after his departure. But it is also seen in the many others who became his disciples as his ministry unfolded. Now, the, the concept of disciples is not strictly a New Testament concept. We see it even in Isaiah. And go now, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us of smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. The disciple is the one who commits to that path to follow Christ. Isaiah's writing this a couple thousand years ago now. Sounds like he's writing about today, isn't it? In rebellion, people call to leave what they know is right and true and forsake God. Here, Isaiah's gonna state how God ransomed through Jesus, those ransomed through Jesus will be returned. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over, and it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I know I'm a fool. But I'm walking in that way. The original version of this sermon came to me in 2014 uh, for the, the church that we helped start back in Arizona. And, and I've been sitting on this and reworking it over the last year or so. And when Ron was not feeling well before, I, I tried to turn to it and I kept getting rebuffed. This is not what I was told to talk on. Ricky just kind of solidified this after last week's sermon and the discussions that, that Ricky, Jim, Bill and I have had on how do we continue to support Ron while he's out. And, and Ricky posed some very tough questions to us in, in where his heart was. Um, back in 2014, I had been speaking with our pastor at the time about this and, and about being the cultural Christian or the disciple. And he made a comment and, and it shocked me even then and now as I sit on it even more, uh, it's just, to me, it's very impactful. He said he wanted to be on the narrow path. But not even 
in this path to be walking in the, sorry, but even in this path to be walking in the middle of the narrow road, not deviating to the right or to the left, the extremes of legalism versus emotionalism, but so focused on God's truth to be able to know and discern what is of God and what is of the enemy, the world and ourselves. And the comment that got me was, I want to stay out of the wagon ruts and the narrow path and just stay in the center. I, I had been playing around with moving this guy over to the grass instead of walking on the ruts there. But I thought that was a, that was a huge aim. You're on the narrow path. Yes, you're bouncing around. But to stay dead center in that path is a desire that I didn't have at the time. And it was a real challenge. What am I bouncing to and fro on that path? So we're reminded that we need to stay on that path, obviously, in a couple places. Um, I think Paul has this same idea in mind in Philippians when he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul wants to just keep moving forward. It's not an easy path. We know that. Author of Hebrews, Ron preached on this not too long ago. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're not struggling alone on this path by any means. Throughout scripture, we see many of our, I'm going to say, heroes taking their eyes off God's plan and direction. And they, they seek to interpret the direction God's given them through lenses outside of God, those lenses of self. Ricky talked last week about making sure that what we do is looking through the eyes, of, the lenses of the gospel in everything we do. I'm going to put up a few examples here of, of what I'm talking about. Um, I'm not going to go into detail on these. Whoops. Jumping ahead. There we go. Um, feel free to take a picture of this, or I'll put it up later if you want. But Abram, Moses, David, Peter, Paul, all different points of their life where they're not looking to the cross. They're not looking to God, to what Jesus has done. As Ricky said last week, we tend to prop people up, don't we? Each one of these men would say, no, don't prop me up. Here's my mistakes. We often sugarcoat it, and uh, we, don't, we don't take the good and the bad. We only focus on the good. We, we need to realize that these men are human. They are sinners, just like us. They have fallen, but they've been saved. 
So everything we say and do, we need to view through the lenses of the gospel. Ron's been preaching on gospel in this church for what, 13 plus years now? 14 years? We know the gospel. That's not a problem. But are we looking at life through the lenses of the gospel? Our senses are fallen and are subject to the effects of sin. In Christ, this has changed for us, but it requires daily discipline to see the world through the lenses of Scripture, to speak to others and ourselves with the truth of Scripture, to hear what God is directing us to do through Scripture. And I would not say Scripture only. I would say prayer. Ricky, you talked about prayer being that just open, honest, raw conversation with God. We, we don't have the magic words we need to say. There, there's no formula you can put together to make God do what you want him to. At that point, we're being a prostitute, aren't we? We're not talking to a lover. We're not talking to somebody who we value. How do, we, how do we deal with this, though? This is a, a problem that Israel struggled with, the church struggles with. How do we stay on that right path? Um, I guess let's throw everybody under the bus today. Bill, you, you talked about this the other day. Um, this is something we typically don't do in our church, but the church at large often uses many creeds and confessions to help keep us not only on that narrow path, but out of the wagon ruts. To many of you, this is gonna seem a little odd because creeds and confessions of faith are not scripture. It's hard to read at the bottom, but it says these historical documents do not replace the Bible. They protect the soundness of biblical interpretation. Creeds and confessions of faith are useful tools which keep the church from repeating age-old heresies. If you're not familiar with many of the creeds and confessions, I would recommend you read them, memorize them, use them to strengthen your walk and discipleship. I said earlier the children are working through New City Catechism. Catechism is simply understanding what the church teaches and why. It's part of the creeds and confessions of faith to keep us centered in the gospel. It's to point us back to Christ, to the gospel. If you're not familiar, with, with any of the creeds and confessions. Again, this is just a huge list. Okay, I didn't put the Baptist Confession or the London Confession on here because it's the cliff notes of the Westminster Cat or Confession. You know, the 1689 Baptist Confessional should be up here. But, oh, there it is. Never mind. It's right under the Westminster. <laughs> um, but all of these are just incredibly useful instruments because they all go directly back to Scripture. It's something the church is not doing today. We are not refuting heresies. We're not writing up a treatise together to say, no, what this person is proclaiming is an anathema. It's a heresy. And here's how Scripture supports our rebuke. As we continue our apprenticeship at the feet of the master, we need to know what he's teaching us to do and what is he molding us to become. 
many passages, parables, and analogies of our relationship with God are there to show us what it should look like and how we should seek to live as Christ did. We're called to be imitators of Christ. How can we imitate somebody that we don't know? There's impressions and then there's imitations. What's the difference? When we imitate somebody, it's somebody we know very well. Now, I say this as a brief list, and I'm not reading all of these. But again, I'm putting this up here because these are just some of the attributes that we need to be very familiar with. It's also a great pause point for me to get a drink. Are we patient, kind? Do we avoid jealousy? Boast and brag. Uh Uh-oh, there goes social media, right? Don't be arrogant. Don't act unbecoming. Don't seek our own way. And yes, there's a typo there. I'm sorry. It's not a new book of the Bible. Don't provoke others. Don't hold a grudge or be resentful. Don't rejoice in unrighteousness. Rejoice in the truth. Bear all things. Believe all things. Hope all things. And endure all things. Ricky spoke quite well last week on how we see God as being the great vine dresser who's currently pruning his church. Are we truly seeking to know God beyond a cultural and head knowledge? Ricky also touched on the fact that there's a responsibility each one of us has. Are we doing what Paul asked the church in Philippi? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ricky, you also mentioned your desire to see each of us and this corporate body as a church not just exist, but to grow and thrive even while Ron is absent from us. That's quite the challenge. Thank you. Each of us is tasked to stand up here. Sorry, each of us that has been tasked to stand up here and speak are not Ron. We can't do what he does week in and week out. He has a gift that we don't have. He has a way of putting things that is so much clearer, so much organized, more organized. We can, however, challenge ourselves and each other to ensure that this flock is healthy and vibrant. How encouraging would it be for him to physically return here and see Crestmont thriving, both growing individually and corporately, seeing this body be healthy and rooted in Jesus? Is that the greatest encouragement of all? Let's make sure we're not those who Jesus spoke of here in Matthew. Again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. The scariest part of scripture right here. And then you will, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is the most scary passage in all of scripture right there. Those who claim to be Christians but are so in name only. So what is the path of discipleship? What does it look like? So again, I started this sermon back in May of 2014. And uh, at that time, I, I was working on a completely different sermon that I thought I was supposed to preach. And I got the 3 a.m. wake-up call. Literally, 3 a.m., wide awake, can't do anything about it. As angry as I am, I'm laying in bed and, and I have to say no sleep for me. This morning, I have to get up. Now, for most pastors, that's nothing new. That happens quite frequently. There's, there's many times when Ron comes in Sunday morning to say, well, this is not the sermon I wrote earlier this week, or sermons. There's been some weeks where he's written multiples. Uh, this was the first time I'd ever really experienced that. And uh, before, I thought it was nothing but a metaphor or comedic antidote anecdote, I can't even say that word. That morning, I was reading through blog posts and found one that Multiply had reposted. Who remembers that book by, by David Platt and Francis Chan, Multiply? All on discipleship. If you have not read through that and worked through that, please do so. Our church was working through it at the time, and, and we were struggling with this same problem. How do we be disciples? How do we make disciples? This article, written by a gentleman named Godwin Sathanathan, it, it is a long word, I'm sorry if I, if he ever sees this, and, and I'm sorry for mispronouncing it. He said, discipleship at its core is the process of growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That sounds simple, but what does that actually look like, and how do pastors lead their churches in discipleship? A good place to begin is Jesus' last words to his disciples. Go, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Godwin goes on to give three examples of, of how he clarifies this. Um, I used it then, I use it now. The first, disciple making is an intentional process of evangelizing non-believers, establishing believers in the faith and equipping leaders. The term make disciples implies intentionality and process. Disciple making doesn't just happen because a church exists and people show up. It's a deliberate process. Consider the modifying participles of going, baptizing, teaching. Help us to recognize this process. It must include evangelizing, going to new people in new places, establishing... <coughs> Excuse me. Establishing, baptizing new believers and teaching obedience and submission and equipping, teaching believers to also make disciples. Second, disciple making happens in the context of a local church. It's a community project, not just a personal pursuit. And that community must be the local church because Jesus has given her unique authority to preach the gospel, baptize believers into faith and church membership and teach obedience to Jesus. 
Disciple making doesn't just happen in coffee shops and living rooms. It also happens in the sanctuary where the word is sung, prayed, read, preached, and displayed through communion and baptism. Jesus didn't have a mind maverick disciple didn't have in mind maverick disciple makers. He had them he had in mind a community of believers who together under the authority of the local church seek to transfer the faith to the next generation. Third, disciple making is word-centered, people-to-people ministry. When Jesus said make disciples, we cannot help but remember how he made disciples. Three years of teaching 12 men on a dusty road. Disciple-making then is the word of God shaping men and women within life-on-life relationships. It's demonstrated in Paul's relationship to the Thessalonian church. We see it here. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. This is gospel-driven, word-saturated, intentional, one-anothering. It is men and women regularly teaching one another to obey what Jesus commanded. And it goes well beyond watching football and having inside jokes with Christian friends. Not that that's bad. But, but as we begin to close here, I, I want to challenge you with several questions. Please take time this week to go and reflect on, on true discipleship and how you see this in action. First, how does our church evangelize, establish, and equip? Not an easy question, is it? Are we growing in our faith? As I said before, Ron's preached the gospel here his entire time. I can't remember a week we've been here where the gospel has not been preached. This church knows what the gospel is. But are we taking it beyond our head knowledge? Are we putting it into everyday practice and action? Are we meeting in fellowship with each other and taking time to actually get to know one another? To be vulnerable with each other? To do life together? Talked to the deacons this morning. And I put a challenge out that we need to lead by example. Even in our own small group there, we are not open with each other. We're not honest with each other. We're not vulnerable with each other like we need to be. When you walk into a church on a Sunday morning, what's the first question you ask somebody? How you doing? What's the, the platitude that you get back? I'm fine. Everything's not fine with any of us. At that moment, things might just be covering up. The pain, the hurt, the depression, the anxiety, the frustration that life deals us. It's rough. This is not an easy life. We are not called to a health and wealth lifestyle, are we? Scripture kind of says it's the exact opposite, doesn't it? So what can we do to evangelize, to establish, to equip others? I don't have an answer. I just get to pose questions. Second, 
Does our church view disciple-making as within the context of the church or only as a solo endeavor? We know we need to improve on this as individuals and corporately. It has to be a combination of both. We're to make sure we are growing, but we're to, to disciple each other, and we're called to go and make disciples. Ricky, you reminded us last week that we're all too often we prop others up and we rely on other outside ministries to do this for the church. It's easier to throw money at something and let them do it. Are we propping up other people, ministries, and organizations? Or are we taking personal responsibility, corporate responsibility, to make sure that this is happening? Third, how would you evaluate our church's word-centered, people-to-people ministry? Are we failing each other in our lack of doing life together? I'd say yes. We had a small, small example of that yesterday. We had men's breakfast. We had Ellie's party. We had a night of just fellowship. Now, this is not to guilt trip anyone, by any means. But why is the church and church members, why is that no longer a priority? For how many thousands of years has doing life together been the priority of the church? Look at the first century church. They took this to heart, didn't they? Those that had plenty sold it all to help those that didn't have any. The rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, all came together in the church under Christ. We know of each other, but do we know who's struggling? Do we know what they're struggling with? Are we coming alongside them to pray with them, to offer biblical guidance and discipleship? Or do we just want to know about it and gossip? The, the famous phrase in the church, I'll pray for you. Right? We use that to say, I, I heard something about so-and-so, so let me pray publicly for them. Fourth, and finally, am I actively involved in disciple-making? Who am I discipling? Am I even speaking to people that I meet on a daily basis? Guess what? God puts a person in front of us every day where we get to talk about Christ. We pray for those opportunities, and he provides one every day with every person we meet. There's only two types of people you're going to meet, Christians and non-Christians, right? Saved and the lost. If that person is saved, are you discipling them? Are you encouraging them? Are you building them up? If that person's lost, why are we not speaking Jesus to them?
Penn Jillette of the, the Magic Team, Penn and Teller, is a noted atheist who was witness to and presented a Bible. Touched by this, he made a YouTube video about the event, and he says this, if you believe there is a heaven and hell, and you think it's not worth telling someone about it, how much do you have to hate him to not proselytize? To believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell people? This man cared enough to proselytize. This man shared the gospel with a very famous, well-known individual who's also a committed atheist. And what does he do? He takes that Bible and he says, thank you. Obviously, the Spirit's at work in his heart, right? We're called to love our neighbors. Are we loving enough to share the gospel with them? Do we have enough love for them that we're worried about their soul? If we don't have a burning desire to share the gospel, we aren't making disciples. In fact, we're demonstrating how much we hate them. Now, these four questions, I ask of myself more than I'm asking of y'all. I just get to share what I've been convicted of. But what can we do as a church here? What can we do as individuals here? I know where I'm failing. I see a lot of where we're failing as a church. How do we change this? There's only one way to fix all of this. We must earnestly seek God. We must truly become disciples of Christ. We need to seek him in prayer and in scripture. And if we want to hear his answers, we need to be grounding ourselves in scripture and seeking his will in prayer. How many times do we say, God's not talking to me. I don't hear anything from him. Am I seeking him in the word? Am I having those daily conversations with him? There's nothing wrong with going to God in prayer and saying, God, life sucks. I'm in despair. I have no hope. I don't know what to do. I hate to say the fake it till you make it. But in a lot of ways, prayer is just stumble through it until it becomes a natural thing, a habit. Almost everyone in here, I'd say everyone in here has been around a little kid trying to learn to talk, right? Are those initial conversations very easy for the child? No, are they easier for you as a parent to understand what they need? Sometimes, other times, no. But we get to talk to a father that has infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, complete understanding. So even when we stumble, we babble, we don't make sense. Our ADD, ADHD prayers go off the rail. You know, the, the whole squirrel moment in the middle of praying. You think God's upset with that? Or is he happy to hear from his children? Knowing that we're trying to reach out even when we don't have the words to say. So like I said, I don't have the answers to this, but I do want everyone to think on this.
our church, the church at large, will not grow unless we disciple. Unless we disciple each other, as long, and as long as we don't disciple everyone around us. I joked earlier about using memes for this whole sermon, and I'm going to close with one. I'm not actually going to show it. But it's a poignant one. It's in a, it's in a Christian meme group I follow. Um, somebody posted that, that you can't share the gospel through memes. And somebody commented, memes are how I was taken to the gospel. It was the jokes, it was the satire, it was having fun as a Christian that drove this individual into the church. God can use anything. God can use anyone, and he will. Do we have the faith to trust him? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We praise you that you are in control. But Father, we need courage. We need boldness in the face of this world. Father, there's a multitude crying out for truth and seeing it everywhere but you. Father, let us truly be imitators of Christ. Let us live as an example let us preach you day in and day out to ourselves, to each other, and to the world. Father, we know it's not about you filling the pews here. But we do ask, Father, give us the motivation to love everyone we meet. To be worried about whether or not they are truly saved, whether or not they are truly following you and growing and learning. Father, we, we echo Paul in writing to the Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Seek that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please don't hesitate. 
please seek him. If you are stagnant in your faith, call out to God. He is the only one that can revive us. If you have questions, please, we'll be up here at the front. We'd love to answer them. But God, we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.